You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, Donald Trump is not invincible. That's the main message of the Iowa caucus. Good news for Ted Cruz, the alternative hard-right candidate, and for Marco Rubio, who has now established himself as a credible mainstream alternative. On the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders has managed to tie with Hillary Clinton. And as David Cameron scrambles around Europe trying to get agreement on a deal with the EU to avert Brexit, EU President Donald Tusk publishes a possible compromise package. Reflecting the anti-migrant tide that has been sweeping the Nordic countries, last week the Danish government introduced what are seen by many as draconian new measures for dealing with migrants. I'm Patrick Smith, Worldviews and Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from correspondents around the world. I'm joined by Samuel Carswell, utterly exhausted, in Iowa, Dennis Staunton in London, and Ulla Riborg, a reporter for Danish radio. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. First to Iowa, where the caucuses have really shaken up the field, and our Washington correspondent Simon Carswell after a night of high drama. Not a good night for for, uh, Donald Trump. It wasn't. Uh, It showed, the results in Iowa showed that he failed to convert uh, the celebrity status that he's brought to this election race into votes. Now, saying that, he didn't do too badly. He came second uh, with 24% behind Ted Cruz, three points behind Ted Cruz, the Texas senator, with 27%. But it wasn't quite where he had been polling. We've been hearing him bragging about polling in the 30s, even up to 40% in some of the national polls. So this isn't a big win for him um, in second. And you know, for a man who likes bragging about winning, uh, this is a loss. And he will not, will not sit comfortably with him to be described as a loser after Iowa. But he did get out the vote. He did to it. He did to an extent. Um, he certainly managed to convert some of those people that come to these rallies. The concern was that he wouldn't. He wouldn't be able to get them to go and caucus in the very complex process that caucus is. Uh, caucus going is in Iowa. Many people here I've spoken to over the last week don't know how it works, and it is a, a very elaborate kind of political dance when it happens. But eventually they. He got he got the 24%, which is strong enough for him to keep him in contention. He's He's got a commanding lead in the next state, which votes in New Hampshire, and he's certainly polling very strongly nationally, so he's by no means out of the race. Critically, it's, not the, critically it seems that the evangelical vote in Iowa, which is particularly high, turned out both for Cruz and for Marco Rubio. I think more so for Cruz than for Rubio. If you look at where Rubio's vote was, it's in a lot of the urban areas around Iowa, around Des Moines, Iowa City, and Davenport in the east. Uh, and Cruz has done very well amongst conservatives and even evangelicals. And that's one of the things, uh, one of the big takeaways, as they call it over here, that from, from Cruz's win here is that he showed that he could mobilize, he could organize, and he had an incredible uh, network of volunteers and precinct captains to police these voting precincts that are across the state. So he's very well organized and really shows that, uh, in Trump's case, celebrity only get you so far, and you need to have the political apparatus to win a state, and Cruz has proven that. And he's got that broad appeal of conservatism and evangelical Christians with his scripture quoting and his constitution-defending rhetoric. So it was a very big win for him here. But the for the Republican establishment, Cruz is almost hated worse than Donald Trump, So in, in some cases, worse than, than Trump. So it's not going to be ter- terribly happy for them, except for the fact that Marco Rubio does appear to be establishing himself as a credible alternative. 
Well, I'd go as, go as far as to say that Rubio's uh, very strong third-place finish with 23% was the win of the night. Um, as we've talked about before, the, the person who comes first, the candidate who comes first in Iowa isn't necessarily that important. It's the top three that people look to because it's not usual for the establishment candidate to do very well in Iowa. And Marco Rubio has done a very respectable 23% and a very solid third. And he's really uh, presented himself in Iowa as the viable establishment candidate, the establishment candidate that's leading in that lane of many establishment candidates. So he really goes to New Hampshire in quite a strong position, and that third place could spring him, springboard him into real contention in later races. And it will help him fundraising? It will. I think what it will say as well is that it'll say to the, the establishment, this is a guy we should be backing. And there's a lot of donors who are still uh, circling Jeb Bush, um, the former Florida governor, and he's only he only got just under 3% in this Iowa in these Iowa caucuses. So I think that that's a sign that, you know, I don't, that, the, that the donors and that the establishment can't back Jeb. They need to back a winner, and they have a clear winner um, in the establishment lane with Rubio. Uh, but Trump is likely to come back and win New Hampshire, isn't that right? Well, he is in the lead in New Hampshire, and now things can change, and, and certainly the New Hampshire electorate often watches what happens in Iowa and can respond accordingly, which is why that momentum that Rubio, Rubio has could do very well there. Cruz won't do as well in New Hampshire because it's more establishment-leaning. Uh, um, so I think it's really a face-off between Trump and Rubio in New Hampshire, and you're going to see Trump turn on Rubio quite forcefully in the next uh, in the coming eight days before the primary on February 9th. Now, there was also a surprise on the Democratic side where Bernie Sanders, who's been threatening to catch up with Hillary Clinton, has drawn dead level with her. But it's interesting that to see the analysis here, uh, that suggests that, that Sanders has done well, but it's probably not enough for him. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't think, I think people were expecting that he needed to win here to figure in the race at all. And I think both candidates can kind of come away with this saying they won. Um, I mean, they were both saying, uh, they were both saying it was a virtual tie. Um, and you had Hillary Clinton saying that, well, she's breathing a big sigh of relief. And I think she's breathing a big sigh of relief that she didn't lose Iowa rather than uh, she, she, she said that she won it. And certainly her campaign has come out uh, in the last uh, few hours to say, to claim victory in Iowa. But it's a it's pretty pyrrhic victory coming out of here with uh, a third of 1% of a margin over your you, over someone that was considered an upstart candidate who had who had zero chance eight months ago of figuring in any of the states, and here he is challenging the one-time presumptive Democratic nominee in the very important first state, and he's actually leading her in the next state, New Hampshire. And Sanders has the advantage of being from Vermont, which is next door, and New Hampshire voters like uh, to vote for neighbouring senators or neighbouring politicians, so he has an advantage there. So. Ten days from now, you could have Hillary Clinton coming out with a draw and a loss, and that's not a particularly glowing uh, record for someone who was considered a shoe-in for the Democratic nomination. A terrible sense of déjà vu for her, uh, if looking back on her contest with with Obama in in, in Iowa. But the interesting well, there's, there's, thing too, one big difference. On, there's one big difference on that though, is that um, a lot of African American voters in OH were sitting on the sidelines and waiting to see how Obama fared, and he did very well in Iowa and surprised a lot of people. And so they kind of backed him in later races. 
Hillary Clinton has the advantage of having the support of African Americans in another very key uh, state in South Carolina and the support of Latinos in Nevada. So Sanders has really got a, a hill to climb to, to challenge Hillary Clinton in those states. He'll do well in New Hampshire, but thereafter he, he could find it difficult. Yeah, she has a commanding lead among women, I believe, too, but Sanders uh, picked up a remarkable 80% of the 17 to 29-year-olds. Uh, that's been that's really been one of the stories of this election is just how fired up these young progressives are and you only have to go into the universities that I was in over the last couple of days um, and the rallies that he did around uh, University of Iowa and Iowa State University and really the, the, the young vote came out in, in in strong numbers for him and that was a concern because again turnout was a key um, if there was going to be a large turnout then Sanders would do well and it's clear that a lot of the younger voters that he had going to those rallies did actually go caucus for him. So uh, he's actually split that Obama coalition that Hillary Clinton was hoping to um, to inherit. And uh, that's going to make things very difficult for her. But as I say, she's got some very big key demographic groups that I think will really uh, swing it in her favour, uh, unless uh, there is a reaction here in Iowa, to the Iowa result and to New Hampshire, but I just can't see it. Thank you very much, Simon. You're listening to the Irish Times. There is new confidence that a deal between UK and Britain may be in the pipeline to allow a June referendum. Some aren't impressed. There was a headline in the Daily Mail uh, today that said, Is that it then, Mr Cameron? And Boris Johnson has already been voicing doubts about key proposals and saying he wants to see more progress. Dennis Staunton, our London correspondent, What's in it uh, and that the President Tusk is offering in his latest package? Well, I suppose the first question is, what is it? And what it is, it's more than a proposal. It's actually a draft text. So it's a draft of a number of declarations which would be adopted by the uh, EU leaders meeting the European Council in a couple of weeks' time. And there are four headings uh, that uh, David Cameron demanded some, uh, or asked for some changes on. One was economic governance, specifically the relationship between the Eurozone and countries that don't use the Euro, uh, including Britain. Another is on competitiveness. Another is on the whole issue of sovereignty and, uh, the, and the commitment to ever closer union. And the, the fourth, which was the most politically difficult, was about the whole business of social benefits for people from other EU member states who come to live in Britain. What they've uh, done with the, the last one is that there's a proposal that any country which finds that its uh, public services or its welfare system is overwhelmed by the number of uh, uh, immigrants from other EU member states who are coming in, can apply to have uh, a, a, a kind of a break put on, um, on welfare benefits up to four years. So in other words, what would happen would be that if you arrive in uh, a particular country and this country says that it's overwhelmed by immigration, that they can then say that uh, for a period of up to four years, that they would uh, be able to limit your access to welfare benefits. But rather crucially, they suggest that this should be graduated. So in other words, at the beginning, you might have no access to benefits. But as you develop a greater connection with the country that you're living in, uh, your access to benefits will increase. And this has a limit of four years. And critically, Uh, I understand that uh, you still have to make a request to fellow member states. It's not a matter of your discretion. And that will certainly annoy Tories. 
That's right. Uh, it's uh, it's certainly got it's got to be something because in fact what they're trying to do with all of this really is to kind of Europeanize it. So in other words, that uh, this is something that wouldn't just be available for Brit- to Britain, but could be available to other EU member states if they find themselves in a similar situation that they happen to have an awful lot of people moving in from other EU member states. So uh, there are certain, of course, I and mean, we can speak about that in a moment about exactly how uh, the conservative Eurosceptics were greeted. But obviously there are some that nothing is ever going to please. The other issue, which is perhaps um, a, a, a sensitive one, is the one on uh, economic governance. And this is the relationship between uh, members of the Eurozone and non-Eurozone members. And what Britain really wanted there was to ensure that the members of the Eurozone wouldn't be able to gang up and introduce uh, measures uh, at an EU level which would disadvantage those countries that are not in the euro, and uh, that's Britain and uh, and a few others. Uh, now, France in particular was concerned about, uh, about what Britain was looking for here because, first of all, it didn't want Britain to be able to have an effective veto over measures that uh, would be deemed necessary by the eurozone for the further integration of the eurozone. But they also didn't want uh, Britain to have a veto over financial regulation that would cover uh, the uh, the eurozone. So what they've done here is uh, proposed another compromise, which would mean that. Um the eurozone would have to take into account the uh, uh, the interests of countries that are not in the eurozone, and they wouldn't be able to introduce anything which discriminated against any country because it wasn't in the euro. Uh, and it also says that certain things to do with banking regulation uh, that are uh, decided at a eurozone level could only apply to countries that use the euro. But they also say that there are certain circumstances where the European Central Bank would have to introduce measures that actually will affect other people as well. And so what they're saying in, that, in those circumstances uh, is that the, uh, the non-Eurozone countries will be able to, um, to uh, call a meeting of the European Council. But once again, they're not going to have a veto on this and they won't be able to delay it for, uh, you know, uh, indefinitely. Which so is one of so the what you're saying is, is that when they're affected, they will effectively be given a say equal to all the other member states. That's right. And there's one other thing which uh, was an important one. One of the reasons this became a big deal in Britain was that in July of last year, in the middle of the night during uh, one of the sort of marathon sessions about bailing out Greece, one of the things they decided was that they were going to use one of the bailout funds uh, to give money to Greece. And uh, they had initially planned to do this without bothering to to talk to the non-euro member states, including Britain, who actually pay into this fund and would actually be liable for whatever would go out of there. Now, eventually, they did actually discuss this with Britain and with the other uh, the other countries involved. But Britain d- decided that this was uh, something that was really rather dangerous because, obviously, they felt that actually, in extremis, that the Eurozone might just be uh, willing to ride roughshod over the interests of, uh, of countries like Britain. So, once again, they've uh, introduced something which would say that, actually, in those circumstances, only members of the Eurozone would be affected so that the Eurozone, again, couldn't make any decisions of that nature about bailout funds without the, um, uh, without the support one of and the, authorization of those. One of the things that the Brit- British have been concerned about is the power of, of national parliaments. And apparently included in the draft is a proposal that will require uh, 55% um, or, or more member states uh, 
to uh, be allowed to block uh, legislation. Is that right? That's right. That is, so if a majority of national parliaments uh, uh, say that uh, a, a particular piece of legislation, of European legislation, uh, breaches the principle of subsidiarity, which means that decisions should be taken at the lowest uh, appropriate level of governance, if they say that, uh, that if they believe that this contravenes it, a majority of them, then, that's, uh, then they can actually scrap the legislation. As they put it, they can discontinue the consideration of this draft legislative act. So in other words, as the legislation is going through the process of being adopted, that then the national parliaments can say, uh, uh, you know, to the European Parliament or whoever is involved, right, we, uh, a majority of us think this is a bad idea and it's overreaching your powers, so we stop this. The other thing that they uh, also say in, with regard to sovereignty is that um, uh, that Britain will be able to uh, drop its commitment to ever closer union. And there they're just acknowledging really that Britain is different uh, insofar as it's not part of the euro, it's not part of Schengen, it's not part of various other things. And so we're saying this is a reality and that this doesn't actually undermine the integrity of uh, the European Union as a whole. It doesn't really impose any any requirement on it anyway. But uh, the, the other thing, from what you're saying, uh, I, I, do you get the impression that treaty changes will, will be necessitated by this? I think what they're talking about is uh, is protocols. So it would be rather similar to uh, to the uh, situation that uh, uh, that uh, the, that Ireland found itself in uh, when it went back uh, after the Lisbon Treaty was rejected in the first referendum, and they proposed some uh, some changes which were, which were attached some protocols and then uh, were uh, were. Uh, implemented or enacted once the next uh, regular accession treaty happened when I think Croatia was joining. So so what they're going to do is it's like a sort of a post-dated check, but it would be a commitment to uh, to treaty change, but not immediate treaty change. Uh, which would be a relief, no doubt, to the Irish government. Yes, it indeed it would. And, uh, but it, it would also a relief to, uh, to David Cameron that, or at least as part of, you know, he really, uh, he's very keen that this referendum should go ahead as soon as possible. And I think one of the interesting things about the way this has been done is the fact that uh, instead of setting himself up for a big showdown at the summit uh, later in February, uh, what uh, David Cameron has effectively done has been to negotiate with the European Commission and the European Council President Donald Tusk so that he and they are on the same page. And then what's left to be done at this stage uh, in the negotiations in, the, in a couple of weeks' time is really to see if everybody else can be brought on board. Uh, this and do you, do you think that's, that's likely? And do you think, think that, the, that he, he can also sell it to his backbenchers? I think he can. Uh, I think on the with regard to the European partners, there are some that are likely to be difficult. Poland, for example, could be difficult not just because of the fact that some of their citizens would be affected by uh, the changes to benefits for um, uh, for migrant workers, but also because of the political situation and the fact that the uh, the new Polish government is at daggers drawn with Donald Tusk, a former Polish prime minister, and it's just a rather flaky and difficult government to deal. 
deal with. Uh, having said that, David Cameron has been using Victor Orban, an equally unsavory uh, character, I don't mean equally to David Cameron, <laughs> but equally to the Polish government, uh, it's, uh, as uh, effectively to uh, as his broker with the Vis- the other Visegrad states, with the Czechs, the Slovaks, the uh, the Poles, and the Hungarians to try to see if they can be persuaded to come on board. Well, we don't know yet. The French, as you mentioned, raised some objections to the uh, business of the the European economic governance issues. It it remains to be seen whether their concerns are are addressed in the draft document. But uh, as you know yourself, Paddy, from uh, spending many years uh, staying up late at night in Brussels. All kinds of unexpected things can happen in these uh, summit negotiations where something comes out of left field where nobody's expecting it and uh, it's some demand by one government or another. And that can hold things up. Where the domestic political situation is concerned, uh, the government seems to be pretty confident that it will limit the number of conservative backbenchers uh, who will oppose uh, the referendum and will oppose uh, the government's position on it to maybe about 70, which is quite a lot less and, than and the ministers. Ministers, I think they're only expecting three, and they're really not in the front uh, rank. That's Chris Grayling, who's the leader of the House, Ian Duncan-Smith, the former Conservative leader, Minister for Work and Pensions, and the Northern Ireland Secretary, Theresa Villiers. Uh, The three bigger beasts that uh, they were concerned about, uh, Home Secretary Theresa May, the Justice Secretary, Michael Gove, and the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, they all seem to be reasonably confident that those three are going to decide to stay on what they think will be the winning side and stick with the Prime Minister. And so as such, I think they're feeling uh, reasonably confident that uh, that uh, he won't have too much to worry about in terms of his own um, his own party. Uh, the other advantage that the, uh, the Prime Minister has is that the no campaign is in total disarray already. There are two main uh, anti-European campaigns, Vote Leave and Leave.eu, and uh, these are kind of uh, Monty Python-esque in their uh, theological differences uh, with one another. But nonetheless, uh, they also, as sectarian groups on the same side often do, they absolutely loathe each other with, uh, with a venom. Uh, that uh, it tends not to be uh, seen among opponents. And so they're, they're tearing themselves apart, and they really haven't got their act together just yet. So if he can move quite quickly to start the process, have a referendum perhaps on the 23rd of June, I think David Cameron is confident that he can win it. Thank you very much, Dennis. Denmark. And the government's determination to clamp down on migrants. Last month, Danish author Christian Merck sent the government a ring that belonged to his grandmother, whose parents migrated from Prussia in the 1800s. As far as I'm aware, he wrote in a letter of protest, my great-grandmother was not asked to hand over her valuables when she reached the Danish border. But thinking of those who will now suffer this humiliation, I'm sending you my grandmother's ring as a token. Ulrich first... It closed the border after new Swedish restrictions, and now it's giving the police new rights to search migrants and confiscate assets above €1,300. What's going on? Well, basically, there is, I think, not only in Denmark, but in other European countries as well, a race to make uh, your country look less attractive to all the asylum applicants that 
alive in Europe, and and uh, one of the things that they have done in Denmark is is this thing which has become very symbolic about you know confiscating uh, rings or, or jewelry from refugees. I think actually that the most important part of that legislation is not as much the the, the symbolic thing about re, uh, about uh, jewelry, but more that you actually at the same time uh, tighten up the rules and makes it a lot more difficult for people to get family reunification and that is uh, an issue which uh, of course uh, is very important to a lot of refugees because when you send them the man uh, uh, ahead beforehand and he hopes to get his wife and children to to join him in in the country where he, he puts his asylum application so there is a lot of uh, different aspects in this uh, Danish legislation but all which has um, the idea of sending the message that it is becoming less attractive to become uh, asylum seeker in Denmark. Uh, Peter Nedegaard, professor of European politics at, at Copenhagen University, says that what he calls the media shitstorm over the new law is 90% uh, hypocrisy and that more than 23,000 refugees have arrived in, in Denmark in 2015. Uh, 70% of Danes say immigration is their biggest political weather worry. But it's not only the press uh, and the international community which are, are, are outraged by this law. Uh, in, in Denmark, it's very controversial too. It is. as What you see in Danish domestic politics is that this law has become very divisive. Denmark used to be a country where we were very proud of having all the time minority governments who negotiated deals uh, uh, across the board and, and, and made compromises with the, with the opposition. Then uh, you've seen later in years that you have a government which uh, makes all the laws in this area together with the with the with with the Danish People's Party, which is a, a party which really has its policy focused on on refugees and on limiting limiting the amount of, of, of refugees and and foreigners that come to Denmark. So in that way, it has become a lot more divisive in Danish politics. So you have kind of two camps that do not talk uh, and do, do not negotiate and and make deals in this area as it used to be common in. In, in, in so many areas in Danish politics early on. So, yes, it is very divisive in Denmark. I, I'll come back to the Danish People's Party uh, issue, uh, but uh, the, are they, it is argued by the government that what they've done is simply impose the same welfare requirement on migrants as already exists on Danes. Is that a fair argument? Uh, yes, to some extent. Uh, there is uh, Danish rules that say that if you uh, lose your job and you have not found another job for a very long time and you need social benefits, there you should use the valuables that you have yourself before you are allowed benefits. Uh, there is also a difference, and the difference is that what you do with the migrants that arrive is that you actually search them for valuables, while if you are a Dane that who who work and who get out of work and lose your job and don't find a new job within two years, and so you lose the unemployment benefits and you have to go to on, on social welfare. There, you I've never heard of any example that police or somebody else went home and checked whether they had any valuables at home. The check, of course, whether there's money in their bank account or whether they own a uh, own a house or something like that. But 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 uh, so in that way, 
it, it at, at least in the in the political debate, uh, there is people pointing out that the way that you treat uh, asylum applicants in Denmark is tougher, even though the rules are the same. But you have to remember also when the when the government originally presented this, then the limit uh, set for valuables for refugees was a lot lower. So that was changed during the negotiations on this law. So in the in, when the first international reporting came on this in December, in for in, for example in the Washington Post and otherwise, there actually the rules were not the same. Uh, the proposed rules were not the same for for asylum applicants as it was for Danes. And how many people are likely to be affected? We get the impression of migrants spending their last cents on paying people traffickers to get them across Europe. Are there many of them with substantial amounts of money? Um, I, I have. There have been questions asked to the Ministry of Justice by by members of Parliament, and the Ministry of Justice had not been capable of giving any examples of uh, refugees with you know arriving with coffers of jewelry or anything like that. So I think exactly that part was mainly some symbolic, uh, and actually. In, in the beginning, intended more for for two reasons: for domestic consumption uh, and for um, and for sending a signal to refugees. And I, I don't think the government was aware, and they got a bit scared when they realized how much media attention it got in in the international press. Uh, I think the more important thing in this, you know, which will affect refugees, is the change rules for family reunification, because that is something which which has a lot bigger effect. Because if you have to wait three years to get some family reunification, then a lot of people would prefer to to apply for asylum in another country where they could uh, be unified with their family a lot faster. This is not really a fundraising measure, but one which is a deterrent uh, to uh, migrants. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole idea of, 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 of all the elements in in this law is, is is twofold. It's one to deter migrants from from applying for asylum in Denmark, and secondly, uh, it's also uh, something which is needed. You can say it in the way that you uh, uh, you need to have uh, to show the Danish people uh, that you uh, that the government want to show them that they, they do something to limit the amount of asylum. Uh, that arrive in Denmark because this, the number is still uh, high, and if you compare it to the amount of, of, of people in Denmark, it's it's it's. I think Denmark is in the fifth place in Europe, so it's not that you don't have people applying for asylum in Denmark. Now, go back to the politics just just briefly. Um, you've spoken about the Danish People's Party. They are a party which which got, took about a fifth of the poll at the at uh, the elections last year. Um, they are very similar to some of the far-right anti-migrant, uh, anti-Islamic uh, parties in uh, Europe. Um, but they're not in government. They're, they're driving this agenda from outside government. Is that right? It's correct. They were actually the second largest party after uh, the last Danish elections. And, and what is interesting is that the, uh, the, the the government party, the Liberals, they were only the third biggest party. Uh, it is quite interesting. If you look at it, at the la- latest Danish election, there was eight parties running for places in the Danish parliament. And of these eight parties, only three of them actually had the ambition of getting into government, while you had five parties 
parties, among them also the Danish People's Party, who decided that they were not going into government. So uh, you see it with the Danish People's Party, but also with other parties, that they prefer being outside and be free to speak their mind, but not to be involved in all parts of all nitty-gritty negotiations of handling you know, everyday life, when, as you have to do when you are in government. But nevertheless, setting the agenda. They are very much setting the agenda because what they do and what they can do is that they, um, they uh, of course, can decide which areas where they really want to be uh, be handling politics together with the government, and of course, uh, especially in the area of, uh, of of refugees and and foreigners living in Denmark, that is that is their main main uh, political point. But they have, I mean, they have a full political program. It's not just a protest party or anything like that. It is a party which has been involved in negotiating the budget and other stuff as well for 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 years and years. And tell me, Ulla, like like many Danes, your your home is actually in Sweden. What is going on in in welcoming Sweden? There are reports of masked men marching the streets, of immigrants being beaten up. Is is uh, Sweden transforming itself into another Denmark? Uh, not at all, I would say. Um, you have to remember that Sweden is different in a way that you have always had uh, a small amount of a very strong uh, extreme right-wing uh, fraction in in Sweden. You've had uh, uh, organized Nazis and, uh, and 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 in another way than if you compare to Denmark. And and what you see now is that some of these people that they are now mobilizing. Uh, uh, you know, in, in their protests, but you also have to compare that. That that uh, if, if you look at what has happened in the amount of people coming to Sweden compared to, for example, Denmark is is uh, you, I mean you cannot even compare it. If, if I just could give you one example, which shows the extent to the uh, the challenges that they have in Sweden is just over four months from uh, this autumn until January, the amount of uh, unaccompanied children that arrived in Sweden uh, from refugees just over four months, it was the equivalent of 1,000 school classes. Imagine that if you are a government having to handle with that, finding places, uh, finding accommodation, finding teachers, making sure that these kids, uh, young young people, uh, find a way to go to school, to start learning uh, Swedish, to to handle their applications for refugees and so on. The, the amount of problems in Sweden handling this or the challenges is enormous and uh, far, far bigger than what's happening in Denmark. Listen, thank you very much, Ulla. That's all from Worldview this week. My thanks to Simon Carswell, Dennis Staunton and Ulla Rieborg, to our producer Declan Conlon and Gary White on Sound. I'm Patrick Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.